The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. First, we're going to take a look at the bond markets. We're going to do that with Eric Stein, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. We had some Pretty big political news that we're digesting today. It appears, uh, it's not uh, already called, but it appears that the Democrats will win both seats, uh, Senate seats in Georgia. Um, What does that mean, do you think, for markets? We're seeing a big move uh, in the Treasury market here with the 10-year trading above above 1%, close to 1.05%. What's it mean to you as it relates to the bond markets and a Democrat in the White House and perhaps controlling the Senate? Yeah, well, first off, thanks thanks for having me on. I guess, you know, before the presidential election and the congressional election we had in early November, everyone was talking about a blue wave and it didn't happen. And now it's, you know, I'd say we're kind of having a blue wave light, if you will. Uh, so certainly, you know, if you look at the market reaction today, the sell-off in treasuries, the steepening of the yield curve, uh, sectors like the banking sector, you know, outperforming. I think, you know, markets are focused on, on you know, the potential for more fiscal stimulus coming from the Democrats, you know, assuming that, uh, that the second race, you know, holds an and Ossoff wins with the you know, 50-50 split and, and Kamala Harris having the tie-breaking vote, you know, control of the Senate. And, you know, to me, the real question is, you know, how much should markets and uh, focus on the fiscal stimulus versus the potential for higher taxes and more regulation? I think my, my prior would be uh, it's probably going to be more of the fiscal stimulus, which is more of a positive than the, the regulation and tax increases, just because of the razor-thin margin uh, in both the House and, uh, and certainly in, in the Senate. But, you know, I think that's what markets are focused on. That's why we have the steepening of the yield curve, you know, right now. So what's the next move for the yield curve? Would it be time to load the boat on 10 years and beyond? Or, or <laughs> uh, Look, I, I, you know, t- to me, this is where, you know, what the Fed does is going to be particularly interesting. So if you think about you know, the, the Fed policy, and we saw it, you know, over the summer with a virtual Jackson Hole, and then more comments from Powell and, and the rest of the FOMC of this average inflation targeting concept, uh, where the Fed, you know, is kind of committed to not let bygones be bygones. So if they're missing to the downside, uh, which they have been on their inflation target to run easy policy. And so, you know, I think we're assuming all holds with, with the vaccine rollout and we get this cyclical recovery that I think very likely will happen, but you don't know it until it really happens, and you get more fiscal stimulus, you'll have some pressure uh, on the back end uh, of, of the curve. And I think the Fed will be okay with that if uh, it's because of recoveries, uh, recovery in the economy, and because higher inflation, so real rates aren't going up a lot, where I think the Fed might step in and buy more bonds, uh, you know, would be uh, if real rates are going up and if financial conditions are getting tighter preemptively in their view. So I think it's going to be really important to watch the Fed's reaction going forward and how that interacts with both fiscal policy and, uh, you know, hopefully a cyclical recovery, you know, post the vaccine rollout. So, Eric, what, what is your view on inflation here? We're seeing it tick up uh, a little bit recently. What are, you, what are you thinking as you think about your yeah, 2021? Yeah, so I, I, 
think there's a lot of conditions in place for an increase in inflation. Um, you know, as I said, you know, mentioned before, the whole the the point of Fed policy right now, uh, you know, the, the Fed policy over the past you know six months or so, as we've had this recovery uh, in markets, but obviously the economy things are a little better, but but still mostly on hold with with COVID. Uh, the, the Fed's you know been at zero and not doing much, which isn't you know I wouldn't say it's doing so much uh, for the economy, but it's doing something. When the economy starts to take off, if the Fed really does keep rates at low, you know, at zero, and tries to stay behind the curve, that's an impulse for inflation. If there's a cyclical pickup, uh, that's an impulse for inflation. Even you know, forgetting the Fed policy, which is which is going to be easier, and then you get fiscal and, and potentially more more government spending, and you see commodity prices and other things start to go up. I think there's a lot of you know things lining up to get more inflation, and we're starting to see that priced into to various asset markets. How is the weakening dollar index changing how you're looking at bond markets around the world, Eric, and, and where you're placing your bets? Yeah, so you know, I, I certainly think that you know we'll, we'll continue to see a, a weakening dollar, you know, from here. Uh, it, you know, if you're a U.S. dollar-based investor, it makes non uh, non-dollar assets, you know, uh, more attractive. So, you know, I think you know, in our let's say Eaton Vance global macro strategy, looking for non-dollar currencies, going long currencies uh, against the the U.S. dollar, and you know, which ones in, though? In because coronavirus market, is all over the world, and you can't discount that well, enough. Yeah, either. no, c- c- correct, and you know, there's 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 some there's some places that are, you know, more more attractive than, than others, you know, for, for sure. Um, you know, I think of, you know, one place from a, both a bond and a currency perspective, I'll say, is China. And you talk about a place that, that has had the corona, even though the coronavirus originated there, certainly has had it uh, more under control. You know, you have you know, significantly more attractive uh, government bond yields than you get uh, in the U.S. and, frankly, you know, a lot of other places, not only in the developed, but the emerging world. And, you know, to some extent, and we'll have to see how, you know, U.S. policy is uh, vis-a-vis China with the Biden administration. I think that's you probably do a whole whole segment on that. But I think you know the the Chinese uh, are okay with with running a, a fairly strong yuan policy. And so if you have a uh, in a weak dollar environment, which I think we're in and then we'll continue to be in, uh, and you also have the Chinese policymakers that are okay with the yuan getting stronger. Uh, you know, I think being invested in Chinese government bonds, both from a interest rate perspective, quite attractive, but also from a, a U.S. dollar investment perspective, uh, I think the yuan will, will appreciate versus the U.S. dollar. Eric, love to get your thoughts on kind of the credit quality out there you're seeing perhaps in your portfolio. I mean, we're, you know, 10, 11 months into this pandemic and the economic fallout. Are you starting to really see it in credit quality? Yeah, you know, look, look. When we talk, you know, I, I think of you know, Eaton Vance fixed income. Really, it's our, our bread and butter is our you know, bank loan, high yield, investment grade credit. Yep. We're a credit shop, and also sovereign and municipal credit, uh, you know, as well. And you know, I certainly think in, in the more leveraged parts of the market, and bank loans and high yield for sure. You've had higher default rates, you know, the past twelve months than, than you had you know the previous twelve months in, in two thousand nineteen. But a lot of those default rates aren't uh, nearly as high as people were certainly thinking about you know March of last year and the kind of heart of the of the pandemic. And we, you know, we started to see recovery in more of the COVID-sensitive names. And so, yeah, I think the, the best thing, um, you know, for for credit markets right now, you know, it's really two things. One is if the economy picks up, that helps, uh, you know, cash flows for businesses and, and makes them uh, more credit worthy. But, you know, the other thing we're seeing is the bond markets are just open for issuance. I mean, I get emails, record issuance in the investment-grade market, kind of markets off and, off and running with, uh, you know, with lots of issuance. And so capital markets are open, uh, and if companies or 
or, or sovereigns or municipalities can take advantage of those, that kind of by construction makes them better credits um, because they're, they're paying relatively low interest rates and, and have, you know, you know, relatively good terms to, to issue debt. So I think we're, we're certainly kind of in the sweet spot uh, in, in that regard with capital markets open and with the economy. You know, hopefully it looks like, um, but again, very vaccine dependent, uh, you know, about to take a cyclical increase, you know, at some point once, once the rollout happens. Eric, how disciplined have you been? How much dry powder or easily accessible powder, let's say, do you have at your disposal percentage-wise? Yeah, you know, great question. I'd say, you know, to me, to me, the great thing about how we're structured at Eaton Vance is you know, all of our different investment teams invest differently. So there's not there's not one particular number. You know, we have multiple different funds on multiple different teams. Um, you know, where where cash is is different. You know, percentages across those. So there's not there's not one you know perfect uh, answer to that. But uh, but I'd say you know in general, you know, we're a place looking for kind of you know relative value across markets as opposed to just you know timing markets with with having cash and and, and dry powder. Although that you know certainly varies strategy by strategy. Eric, you know, we've seen in the equity markets a rotation trade, if you will, from some of the tried and true uh, high growth tech names into some of the more cyclical areas of the market, anticipating uh, you know the other side of this pandemic and an ec- economic reopening and rebound beginning arguably sometime in the, the middle of this year. Have you been doing something similar with your fixed income portfolios? Yes, well, I, I think it's a great question. To me, it's, it's the number one thing I'm, I'm watching from a you know from a financial market perspective is does this rotation trade that you know kind of started uh, in November of last year, kind of post election, post those two Mondays that, that we had the good vaccine news, uh, and you know I, obviously I think it's it's you know growth stocks to cyclical, but it's also you know U.S. to non-U.S. Um, but I think it's you know synonymous from a bond market perspective with with a steeper yield curve, uh, with COVID credits. Um, you know, the COVID hit credits uh, outperforming and things like that. And so I think when you look at broad markets, obviously, you know, broad market valuations, P.E. ratios, spreads and whatnot, you know, could look fairly stre- you know, stretched or at least fully valued. But I think the, you know, that cyclical trade, I think, is probably where there's still some value left across financial markets. And assuming, again, assuming, I'll, I'll reiterate this again, that the vaccine rollout <laughs> goes well, I expect money to continue to flow there. So, yeah, I think, you know, selectively we've been adding in some of the COVID-related credits and also, you know, inflation break-evens uh, to continue to go up, but I, I think, you know, markets that will benefit from, um, you know, inflation uh, going up, so inflation break-even trades or other, you know, types of trades that will benefit from a steeper yield curve, we, you know, we have, we do have some of those in our portfolios for sure. Eric, I'm sure you had a call this morning. Was there any sort of target on the 10-year yield? Uh, I don't have a particular call, uh, you know, on the tenure. I would think that it, you know, it probably goes up a little bit from here. To me, the most important thing will be, you know, what is the what does the Fed respond? How does the Fed respond to it? And again, I think if it's if it's because we're getting cyclical growth, it's because we're getting higher inflation. They're okay with it. If real rates start to go up a lot and that tightens financial conditions, then I think the Fed the Fed jumps in. Uh, so to me, that's the most important thing to watch when thinking about the ten year uh, Treasury. But my bias would be that it probably goes up a little bit from here. So Eric, where, where is the best value that you're seeing in the market right here? 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, a couple places, you know, uh, emerging market local currencies, I, th- I think, are good value. I think bank loans uh, are good value. I think parts of the, you know, uh, securitized market CLOs uh, are good value. Um, you know, I think there, there are certainly selective opportunities, you know, across uh, across those those, uh, those markets, uh, you know, as well as trades that, that bet on a steeper yield curve or bet, our, bet on higher inflation. So, you know, things, things in, in the recovery um, kind of bucket, uh, I, I would think that, uh, you know, there's probably the best value out there. But again, <laughs> nothing is the value of what it was, uh, you know, post the March sell-off right. or even back in the summer. Markets have moved a lot, but, but I still think there's, there's some, you know, selective areas of opportunity for sure. All right, Eric, thank you so much for joining today. An excellent day to be speaking with us and for us to be speaking with you, I should say, rather. Eric Stein is Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at the massive, humongous Boston-based <laughs> Eaton Vance. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The calculus could potentially be changing given election results in Georgia. We haven't got the absolute final figures yet, but... One thing we did have today was ADP employment change, which showed a drop of 123,000 private sector payrolls. Economists were looking for that to be a positive figure of 75,000. So let's bring in Carl Weinberger, finder and high frequency economics chief economist, to explain to us how the calculus for him has changed over the last 24 hours, literally. Carl. Hi, Vani. Good morning. Yeah, it's been an exciting night overnight for uh, anyone watching uh, U.S. economic and budget prospects. Uh, We see uh, likely wins, although still not confirmed by Democratic uh, candidates in um, the Georgia runoff. Everybody knows that already. Um, That opens up the door to getting more done under the Biden administration. Probably not a a full-blown new green economic deal, uh, but uh, putting together a package that can appeal to most of the center of the road Democrats and maybe drawing some of the center of the road Republicans and uh, pull together a coalition in the Senate to uh, enable Biden to realize some of his goals. That probably means some reversal of some of the Trump tax increases. It probably means uh, more uh, support for incomes of people. Uh, And uh, again, tweaks here and there uh, on the Trump program uh, to bring it more in line with democratic thinking. Uh, I don't think we'll get radical results out of it, but we will see change. Carl, what kind of spending bill do you believe uh, has perhaps the most bipartisan support in what looks like to be this new Congress and, and, and what will have the biggest impact on the economy? Yeah, so I think that the, the first word that comes to mind is income support, and we're going to get some increase in the package that, um, uh, that we've seen uh, uh, that was put out so far. Uh, the American households need that kind of support right now, and this is the time to go to the trenches and get it. Number two, infrastructure. All right. Great Depression. All right. FDR sending people out to dig ditches and to build ugly roads in New Jersey and ugly bridges that are still standing today out of concrete. 
Um, we have to put people to work, and infrastructure projects are a way to do that. Uh, I think that infrastructure is something that even Republicans who are trying to get themselves reelected in as soon as two years um, have to uh, be able to agree with the Democrats on. And number three, I think taxes. I think this is a big cry among the Democrats. Uh, we're going to see some unrolling, at least, of some of the higher income tax breaks that came out of uh, the Trump uh, rest- uh, administration's tax efforts. Uh, we'll see probably a restoration of the uh, state and local tax uh, deductions um, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge agenda. If Chuck Schumer does actually displace Republican leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate, thereby deciding on what can come before the, the chamber for a full vote, and, you know, Joe Biden has Kamala Harris to sort of cast a, a tie-breaking vote, just how to the left will Joe Biden go with his legislation? I mean, a lot of Democrats that are elected are pretty moderate, too. Yeah, well, Vani, let's remember how we got the present stimulus bill done, just to look for a third way, um, if I can borrow uh, that phrase from somebody else. Um, we saw moderate Republicans join together with moderate Democrats to get 51 votes in the Senate to bring the bill to the floor, going around Mitch McConnell's view that uh, objections to bringing it to the floor at all. And this is another way that this can move forward, all right? Movement toward the center on ideas that appeal to both moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans. This is the way things used to work in Congress, you know? We'd find a place in the middle that everybody could get to with each side being willing to make compromises. I think you can't rule that out as a way that this is going to go. Uh, that it's going to be the center uh, as much as the majority leader who's going to be driving the agenda in the Senate. Carl, let's switch gears a little bit to China. We've had some news today about the the delistings appears to be off on some of these China telecom names. What do you what is your expectation for um, trade under a Biden administration? How do you expect this administration will uh, address trade and just broader tensions uh, issues with China? Uh, Paul, I thought you were going to ask me about inflation. On China, (laughs) uh, we're going to see, uh, I think, not such a a big, uh, we'll see a change in attitude and in approach, but not such a big series of concessions coming right out of the, the, the gun. The Trump administration has left a lot of chips on the table for the Biden administration to play. I think the Biden administration will be tough on China, although perhaps coming at it from a more balanced point of view. And they're not going to unwind tariffs and sanctions unless they get something back for it. Uh, the test of that theory will be whether the Chinese think it's important anymore to placate American interests or whether they're completing a pivot toward Europe that gives Europe a role on China's geo strategy that the U.S. might have had but now won't have. So there's a lot of potential dynamics there, but I don't think the Biden administration is going to come out making nice, nice with uh, the government in China. I think that uh, any rolling back of trade restrictions is going to be um, uh, faced over time. One other point, despite all right. the sanctions and all the other things, uh, goodness gracious, China booked a record trade surplus with the United States on yep. record exports in the last monthly report. It's not killing them what uh, the Trump administration has been doing. Hey, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your thoughts uh, and outlook. Carl uh, Weinberg, founder and chief international economist for high frequency economics uh, based in New York City. Another fascinating story we've been following for the last several days is the New York Stock Exchange uh, and its dealings with some of these Chinese telecom companies. And the NYSE surprised markets again today 
It's reverting to its original plan to delist shares of three Chinese companies. For more, we bring in fans reporter Lenan Nguyen in New York. Lenan, I've been getting whipsawed, like I'm sure many investors have, by the New York Stock Exchange and its listing, delisting of these Chinese companies. What's the latest? So the latest, Paul, which is something that we um, were reporting on sources yesterday, is that NYSE will go ahead with delisting these three Chinese companies. Now, uh, what it has done is gotten specific guidance from the Treasury Department that these companies and the securities are in scope, and so it's decided to proceed again with delisting. Right. So, you know, you, you sort of answered my next question to a certain extent. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin calling on NYSE President Stacey Cunningham to say he opposed the shock announcement to grant the companies a reprieve. So how much do politics play into the saga? How much are they allowed to? I think there's a a lot of politics already embedded in that question, Bonnie, and um, this is a highly, highly political story here. So obviously, we can't look at this without looking at the context of the U.S. and China, trade tensions and, you know, trade war that we're ensconced in right now. And so obviously, um, you know, a a U.S. stock exchange deciding to delist um, securities of Chinese companies is highly political, highly contentious. Obviously, it was criticized um, in China. Those companies are kind of watching the situation closely. And also, it's being watched very closely by the U.S. business community as well. Many U.S. firms, including the biggest U.S. banks, are trying to expand in China. And so, uh, you know, this kind of puts things in a sort of uh, contentious um, and and tense environment. So I kind of was surprised. I guess what was most surprising was yesterday's announcement, or they announced it by the NYSE, to uh, suspend the delisting, if you will. Did they kind of go rogue there yesterday? It's very unclear. A lot of uh, our sources are still scratching their heads. There are a lot of questions about what happened behind the scenes here, Paul. So unfortunately, I can't answer that question too directly. But what I can say is that um, you know, it sounds like this was messy on both sides. It sounds like it was messy in terms of, um, you know, how, how it was uh, handled and decided within government and also how it was rolled out by NYC. Obviously, big U.S. companies don't tend to, you know, m- take action, reverse, and then reverse again. Um, and so, obviously, there, there's going to be some soul-searching about what, what exactly happened here. So it, it, it's pretty messy, um, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what went wrong. Have you been watching the market today, Lenan? Are ADRs reacting? Yeah, well, ADRs have reacted throughout this whole process. They kind of went, went, uh, you know, fell when the delistings were announced, and then went back up when they were pulled back. And so, uh, I think it's a bit of a roller coaster. But what's key here is that it looks like these securities are, you know, in scope of the executive order, and it means that uh, investors do have to get rid of them by next week. So. What's the, you know, speaking to some observers here, more from a geopolitical perspective, is maybe the concern that perhaps China will retaliate uh, against the U.S. and maybe some U.S. companies. Is is that a realistic concern from the the folks you talk to? Definitely a realistic concern, for sure. Um, And again, these are subtle. Um, This is a nuanced situation, Paul, so it's not as if, you know, we're hearing about any kind of tit-for-tat threats, but... Uh, you know, the U.S. business community does want to have a good relationship with China. And so the escalating trade war, um, you know, particularly in the financial community, is not looked upon well 
here. So um, I, I do think whether, you know, U.S. companies are talking to their uh, Chinese base or talking to their Chinese contacts or whether they're just anticipating, um, you know, negative blowback, um, I, I think that's a very real concern. What does the financial community tell you about how much work will need to be done by a Biden administration to improve the relationship and, and whether they feel like that's what the Biden administration will even try to do? Well, I think, first of all, they want to sift through the, um, the issues that are in front of them right now, which is how to um, you know, halt the trading of the securities that are affected by this executive order, um, and then you know, see what happens in the next couple of weeks um, as the Trump administration leaves, whether there are any other you know, trade-related issues that could come up um, in the next couple of weeks. Obviously, it's a very unpredictable time. Uh, and then going forward, yes, I think the business community is very, very interested in trying to rebuild and repair relationships with China. Um, and it's, you know, it's not exactly clear um, how the Biden administration will react to this, but there is obviously a lot of legislative um, sort of hawkishness around China as well. So it's not just about the administration. It's also about what's happening in Congress. All right. So. Leanne, assuming we don't get any new wrinkles in the story, and that's a big assumption, I guess, what is the expected timing here? If I own these stocks, I guess I have to sell them, and when do I have to sell them, and what's the timing there? So the industry is really looking at Monday as being the key date because that's when you are not allowed to trade the securities anymore, either buy or sell or kind of like actively, um, you know, transact them. So that means all of the indexes, for instance, are going to have to sort of remove these securities and the exchanges are going to have to remove them. And so there are a lot of kind of follow on effects. If you have a kind of passive holding in your portfolio that has to be divested by uh, November, but, um, you know, everyone else in the markets, the real kind of day-to-day people are looking at Monday as the, the real drop-dead date. Lalan, why three telecommunications companies in particular? There are plenty of other Chinese companies listed. Will they be next or is, 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 is the impetus specifically telecoms? Well, I, I think one of the things that the industry is kind of sighing with relief today is that it got specific guidance from the Treasury as to which entities were sort of viewed as, you know, being linked to the Chinese military. So that's that's the move, right? That it originates with the executive order and it originates with the administration. So, you know, one of the things that the industry has been clamoring for is clarity around which securities, not just which kind of over overarching companies, but also which subsidiaries, which tickers, etc. They were looking for details. Um, and so that that is one question that has been at least put to rest today. Um, in terms of, you know, which companies were selected, again, that's to do with the links to the, um, you know, Chinese government and, and its military. So, that was the call by the administration. And Lenan, just finally, I think about some other big Chinese companies listed here, you know, the Alibabas of the world, the JDs.com. These are huge companies as well. I wonder if they're at risk. Well, I, I think there has been a ratcheting up of um, executive orders in recent days. And obviously the outgoing administration is, um, you know, Making, taking action on China. Um, we will see whether that is continued, extended once the new administration comes in or not. But certainly, you know, in the, these last couple of weeks of the Trump administration, we are seeing a ratcheting up of sort of a tensions with China on multiple fronts.
Lonan, thank you so much for jumping on the phone there. Her wonderful story today. And we'll see reverses again with plans yes. to delist China telecom firms. She's written a few of those in the last few days, but she has not got confused. Lana Nguyen covering stocks and all sorts of stories and, and uh, finance reporter more broadly for us at Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are awaiting uh, comments from President Trump as he delivers remarks at the Women for America First March to Save America rally uh, in Washington, D.C. Let's get a little preview of what we might hear and kind of what's going on at the White House. We can do that with Josh Wingrove. He's a White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Josh, thanks so much for joining us here. We're awaiting comments from President Trump in Washington. Do you expect anything new today or will this be some of his uh, speaking points as it relates to uh, the election? Yeah, good morning. I, I think it'll be a greatest hits album, for lack of a better phrase. He's been tweeting through last night and in the morning, uh, urging Mike Pence to reject the results today in Congress, which Mike Pence doesn't have the power to do and has given no signal that he's willing to do, but has kept quiet on. So I suppose there's room for a surprise on that. Uh, Trump is discrediting the results uh, you know, over the objections of the Republican state officials who are running this election uh, but it's also tacitly acknowledged that they've lost the Senate uh, and is using it as a uh, motivation uh, for Republican senators and members of Cong- uh, members of the House to uh, overturn Biden's victory and keep him in the presidency so that he can veto things. So, you know, it, Trump has been fundraising office, office. He's been a font of misinformation. Uh, he has been stoking the anger of his supporters. It's very unclear how the air will come out of this balloon. Yeah, I mean, Nathan Hager just played some sound from a woman at today's pro-Trump rally saying that they weren't going to go down easily. What does that mean, Josh? What, I mean, is there is there a lot of security in Washington, D.C.? And, and, and is anybody concerned? Huge security, tons of road closures. No one I know living in Washington is going anywhere near that part of town yeah. right now if they don't have to. Um, we don't know. Like, fighting is this, like, animating language of the Republican Party right now. If you had to, like, look for one quality that people want Republicans, it's fighting. But right now, it's sort of performance art more than anything. It's sort of out of options. And in particular, Trump looks like he's lost the Senate majority. It's too early to call it, but John Ossoff is leading for that. Because, in part, he told people the election was rigged. In other words, he, Republican voters in Georgia were told that this is all a sham, it's all rigged, but they should take time to vote anyway. You can appreciate why some of them maybe didn't do that. And so, I mean, you know, tr- Trump four years ago swept power on the strength of the Electoral College. What he's urging people to do today is essentially kneecap the Electoral College by cherry picking which states uh, to uh, accept and which states to not. Of course, two years ago, he lost the House. Uh, it looks like now he loses the Senate and uh, he, his departing message, assuming he actually physically departs the White House, is to his supporters that this was all rigged. Josh, how small is the inner circle around the president right now here? Because his behavior obviously is, as it relates to the election and the viability of the election, has been so uh, odd, I guess, is, is, is a word can be used. 
How much support does he still have within the White House? It is unclear. It, it's smaller than ever, though. I mean, it just sh- seems to have shrunk. You know, by the day, the number of people willing to put their names on statements. Uh, Trump put out a pretty explosive statement last night. Didn't even put it out through the White House. He put it out through the campaign. Um, so, you know, it looks to be down to just a handful of folks, including Rudy Giuliani, who just spoke at, at this rally as we wait for President Trump to arrive and talked about doing trial by combat. So, you know, we're using these really loaded language that, that of course, has raised security concerns. Many of the people attending the rally are dressed in sort of like quasi-militia type gear. So, you know, take that for what it is. But, you know, right now, Donald Trump, I think it's an open question as to what his legacy is in the party. In the House of Representatives, it seems pretty strong. We're going to see like a 100 or more members of the House object today. And in part, that's because they are scared of primary challenges. Eric Trump, the president's son, threatened yesterday to help primary any Republican congressman who did not object to the results. Senators, on the other hand, are a little less exposed to primary challenges. Longer terms are only up every six years. And so that's why we're only seeing 13 Republican senators uh, object uh, in the same way, as opposed to, as I say, 100 or more Republican House members. Yeah, that is phenomenal. I mean, the theater of this is just something else, Josh. But, I mean, come inauguration night, will that theater all stop? Um, I don't think so. Trump is a showman. I mean, the official, like, you know, most, very few people think that Donald Trump will still be in the White House, you know, as of the end of January 20th. But he will go down or he, he is telegraphing, at least, that he will go down continuing to say it's rigged. He will never admit it's not. He's fundraising off of it. He's amassed quite a war chest in his pack uh, from doing so. This will allow him to direct money, to more or less whatever he wants politically, including whatever candidate he wants. We will continue to see him flex his muscles. And, you know, we'll see what happens. What has, yesterday might have shown is what, similar to what 2018 showed, which is that Trump has his supporters, clearly, but when he is not on the ballot physically, uh, like, if, you know, people aren't showing up to vote for him, they don't show up in the same numbers. And that hurt them yesterday in the runoff. That hurt them in 2018. It remains to be seen what that will mean in the midterms and heading into 2024. Of course, the big question is Trump hasn't wanted to talk about 2024 in terms of his own ambitions. Will he run again? This is one of the open ones. And so, you know, the betting odds kind of depend on who you ask. Uh, But that that might be the next shoe to drop. The rhetoric from Joe Biden and company will have to be extremely, extremely important in the next few days. Right, Josh? Uh, You know, Joe Biden will probably speak more than a, a very early in his term, president normally would. Yeah, I, I think uh, in some ways the pandemic will give them a chance to redirect focus. They've said that that is priority number one. Uh, we've seen a little bit of waffling actually today on the issue of checks. Remember, Joe Biden went to Georgia and told everyone, vote for John Ossoff and Michael uh, uh, Warnock, uh, Reverend Warnock, and you will get $2,000 checks. And today, Warnock is saying that. Whereas Biden ally Chris Coons is not really saying that. He's saying checks will move more quickly, but not necessarily immediately. And John Ossoff didn't put a dollar value on how much he thinks people should get when he spoke today. So a little bit of muddied water already beginning. But I think we'll see Biden put a unrelenting focus on the virus early on and maybe hope that that will take the temperature down a little bit. Hey, Josh, we had uh, President uh, George uh, W. Bush uh, announce that he will and his wife will attend uh, the inauguration what do we know about President Trump? Will he attend? 
We don't know. And uh, Jim Clyburn yesterday, who's one of Biden's top allies in Congress, uh, said that they are, you know, budgeting for a lot of what ifs. They do not know whether Trump will want to go or not go. They kind of have to plan for both scenarios. One other thing that they don't know really right now is, uh, you know, whether it'll be safe for Biden to, for instance, walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is normally, you know, what happens uh, during an inauguration. They say Trump might put out a call for his supporters to do what they're doing today, come out and protest, in which case maybe the Secret Service might not love the idea of Biden walking down Pennsylvania. So it's all up in the air. But yeah, George W. Bush continuing to send signals to the party on this. He was very early to recognize Biden's victory on November 3rd. Trump, of course, has never done that. He's never conceded. And now, you know, him saying he'll attend the inauguration, I think, is a bit to sort of move the party past where we're at. And as I say, in the Senate, we're seeing some of that, right? We've got that 13 or so who are objecting. That means the vast majority, 37, 38, whatever it is, uh, or so, are not. And many of them are pretty staunch Trump supporters, but they're saying, hey, it's not in the Constitution for us to just, like, pick and choose who we want to win elections. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say an absolute nightmare for the Secret Service, preparing for literally every yeah. eventuality, so many permutations and combinations. Josh, thank you. I know you'll keep us up to date throughout the day. That is Josh Wingrove, our White House correspondent who is in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.